1: Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. I'll be co-hosting today with WFIU's News Bureau Chief, Sarah Whitmire. Today we're going to be talking with guests about the federal executions that have been carried out this week and will continue to be carried out uh, tonight in Terre Haute, um, in the federal penitentiary in Terre Haute. We have uh, three guests that are joining us right now. We have uh, Robert Dunham, Death Penalty Information Center Executive Director, and two reporters from WFIU-WTIU News, Adam Pinsker and George Hale, and both have been media witnesses for federal executions in recent weeks. We hope to be joined later in the program by Angela Moore, a former federal prosecutor involved in the death sentence of Brandon Bernard. You can follow us on Twitter at noon edition, and you can also send us questions there or to news at indiana public dot org. Well, thanks for joining us today. I know uh, Robert Dunham, you were on the program earlier this summer when we talked about uh, these death penalty, these um, executions resuming again. So I wanted to talk. I wanted you to sort of frame this issue of how this is uh, something new and, and you know, I guess you could say it's historic in the number and the, the frequency that we're having executions now. And then if you could talk a little bit about um, Brandon Bernard and why his execution last night was a little bit unusual.
2: Well, what we are seeing here um, is something that is historically an aberration. Um, For 17 years, the federal government didn't carry out any executions. Uh, And then when it started this year, uh, it began the executions at a time that all the states in the U.S. had halted executions because of the pandemic. Uh, There will be, if the execution today goes forward, uh, 10 federal civilian executions this year. uh, And there will be uh, seven executions by states. That will be the first time in American history. Uh, going back to the start of the country, uh, in which the federal government has carried out more civilian executions than the states have. Uh, it also uh, is uh, historically aberrational in, in, uh, uh, in another sense, the, uh, uh, the 10 executions this year uh, are more than in any other year in the 20th or 21st centuries. You've got to go back to the 1800s, 1896, uh, before we had any other uh, presidency with double-digit executions um, in a single year. And the six executions that are scheduled for the transition period uh, is also something that has never occurred in U.S. history. Uh, the last um, the last transition period execution uh, was more than a century ago, uh, and the last time there was more than one in a single presidency – uh, was uh, in the 1880s. The most ever were five during Chester A. Arthur's uh, administration during the transition uh, between his time in office uh, and um, and Grover Cleveland's presidency. So we're talking about something that is really historically out of step um, with anything in American history at a time in which uh, there were fewer state executions uh, than any period in the last 37 years and fewer death sentences imposed uh, than in any year since the death penalty came back in the 1970s.
1: So to, to look at it um, on the surface, it appears that the difference is uh, president Trump and his administration. Is there anything more to it than that?
2: I think that that is it um, pure and simple. Uh, This, uh, this administration has, um, deviated from traditional American norms in a lot of ways, and the politicization of the Justice Department, uh, I think, is one of the more critical ways. I think you've got to read the um, the policies with respect to capital punishment in conjunction with the uh, use of force against peaceful protesters uh, and separating families at the border and putting children in cages. These are things that, um, that we just, uh, we, we just don't see. Uh, and the, the, the choice to carry out uh, executions during a pandemic uh, in which more than a quarter million Americans have already been killed uh, and in which we already, and with respect to which we already know um, COVID-19 has been transmitted. Uh, One of the members of the first execution team uh, had uh, had COVID-19. Eight members of the execution team contracted COVID uh, after the execution of, of Orlando Hall, and Hall's religious advisor uh, also was sickened uh, by the disease. Uh, and with the scheduled execution of Lisa Montgomery, uh, two of the defense lawyers uh, were required to travel from Tennessee to uh, to visit her in Texas because of her mental instability and severe mental illness. Uh, and to try to explain what was going on and to help prepare uh, her clemency petition. And they both contracted uh, cases of COVID that were so serious that the federal court stayed her execution uh, from this week, and the federal government uh, rescheduled it uh, for the beginning of next year.
1: So I want to bring in um, both George Hale and Adam Pinsker. You, You have both witnessed executions. George, I believe you were there last night for that execution, were you not?
3: I was, and I'm still in Terre Haute right now,
1: so can you talk a little bit about what 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 goes into being a witness please
3: uh yeah sure it's you know it's actually like a you know, it's a very controlled process um obviously it's a really secure facility um but uh they have usually a, since i've been, been here five or six um reporters uh usually they choose people from um or, you know organizations that have uh you know a wide reach like a broadcast or uh, newswire. Um and then uh, they have a special chamber that they they take uh, they take the people to, um, and then there's a there's a room for the media with the glass facing the um, the inmate, um, which is separate from some of the you know from different rooms that also face the same spot and uh, yeah they obviously these are carried out by lethal injection, so that's how it 's done.
1: So can you talk a little bit about uh, Brandon Bernard and what what exactly happened last night?
3: Yeah, this was actually a really interesting um, um, experience. Uh, this is the third time I've witnessed an execution, but um, this is the only time that I've ever um, uh, seen the the inmate just uh, make eye contact, you know, acknowledge the, the reporters in the room, not his head, at, not his head at us, you know, and sort of give us a sign that he was aware of why we were there and what we were doing. Um, it was interesting too. He, you know, he seemed to really be at peace that, that, I didn't get the impression from the prior two. Uh, he apologized uh, to the victims. It was primarily His last words were primarily just to um, apologize to the family of the people that um, died um, when he and another uh, man named Christopher Vialva were involved in a carjacking that resulted in someone else, actually, but someone else shooting uh, these two people in Texas. Um, yeah, and uh, he, he actually, there was a, some hope from supporters because um Kim Kardashian had taken up the cause and the last minute Alan Dershowitz and a few other Trump supporters joined on into his legal team. Um, but yeah, in the end, Trump decided not to intervene.
1: In this case, I mean, a lot of the reason that uh, or part of the reason that people were so interested in trying to intervene was because um, Brandon Bernard was only 18 years old when this crime occurred and he wasn't the one that pulled the trigger. Isn't that correct?
3: Yeah, that's right. Even the government, you know. the, the you know, not even the government claims that he really um, contributed to you know the shooting at all. Uh, he wasn't even there actually when the, the couple was kidnapped. Uh, what he did later was he set the car on fire at the you know, upon the instructions of the sort of higher ranking member of the gang, if we're calling it a gang, um, named Christopher Villalva. Um, the government can like sort of uh, they they claim that. The, there was some sort of soot in the lungs of one of the two victims, which indicated that maybe one of them was still alive um, when the car was set on fire. And so um, Bernard's involvement, I guess, in setting the car on fire would be why he you know, could technically be charged with murder. Um, but his supporters insist he had no, no idea they were still alive and not no, idea, no, idea, no idea they were going to be shot in the first
4: place. And the crime itself, if I may just jump in, is, became a federal issue because it took place on the grounds of Fort Hood. So the crime that they were charged under was referred to committing murder on a um, special maritime or federal jurisdiction. That's also the same charge that um, Alfred Bourgeois was convicted of, who's being executed or scheduled to be executed tonight, was because uh, of his he the incident that he was involved in occurred on a naval air base in uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. So that's that's how these are federal cases.
1: And that's the voice of Adam Pinsker. And Adam, you were there for Christopher Vialda's execution, right?
4: George, that was actually George's first or second one. I did the first five. Uh, but we, I did interview his mother, George and I did. Um, and uh, she was obviously very outspoken trying to to save her son. Um, and, and, basically spent almost the same amount of time on death row as Brandon Bernard, about half his life. The son was about a year older than Brandon Bernard, Brandon Bernard I believe, uh, when that murder occurred in 1999. So, um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I've been kind of going back and forth with George on these executions because they've just been, they've been increasing in frequency. There's three more, scheduled before Vice or President elect Biden takes over, um, but the uh, Attorney General Barr could even schedule more in there if he wanted to. He's 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 hinted that he could do that. So it's been uh, it's been keeping us rather busy.
1: So if uh, you want to join us on the program today, we're talking about the death penalty. There was an execution last night. There's another one scheduled for tonight. They're um, in Terre Haute, Indiana, the federal penitentiary. You can send us your questions on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. want to uh, ask Sarah Whitmire to come in. I know Sarah has a question to ask, but I want to ask Sarah a question first because as news director of the station, uh, I believe WFIU and WTIU have been as consistent as anybody in the country in terms of covering these executions, um, why do you think it's important that we're there for everyone?
5: Well, I'm, I think one of the things is it's unusual to execute people. So I think that makes it newsworthy. But also I think we have a watchdog role to play. Um, we've seen in the past that some of these executions, there are issues with the way in which they're Covered out, the way in which they're carried out. And, you know, we've also done stories about um, whether the way in which they're executed is humane if they suffer. And I think those are things that you have to be there to witness. And as long as people are being executed, I think journalists have a responsibility to be there. But certainly it's something that we've had conversations about in the newsroom because it is incredibly hard on reporters i think george and adam have done incredible work covering these and that's a lot to ask of someone to keep witnessing these executions time and time again um so i think certainly our whole team appreciates the work they're doing but but also then you add in the factor of covid which is something as a news director you have to think about and there are so many cases at the federal penitentiary, and then also with the execution team that's coming in. And I have an obligation to make sure our team is protected, and I'm not putting them at risk. Um,
1: so well, one of one of the reasons I asked that question is because it, you know, it seems like a lot of national media are really just now starting to catch up and wake up to what's going on. Um, and you've been. You know, at the forefront, you and and Adam and George have been at the forefront of making sure that that uh, these executions are being carried out in the light of day. And before I let you ask your question, I just wanted to ask Robert Dunham about that. I mean, it seems it seems as if there's been a lot more uh, media attention, just probably because of Brandon Bernard's execution, but. Um, You know, as I said, Sarah's uh, in the newsroom here at WFIU WTIU have been on this from the beginning. Have you seen, have there been other media outlets that have been on this as well? Um,
2: Associated Press has been covering all of them, but I think that um, uh, WFIU and Indiana Public Media has done a superior job, uh, both because it's local and because you're good. (laughs) Um, But I, I think... You know, when it comes to the role of the media, it is absolutely critical that there be a neutral public observer. Uh, there are so many different things that are important uh, for the public to know about uh, about the executions, and when we think of uh, executions during a COVID era. Uh, one of the uh, one of the issues that came up. Is whether the execution team was properly masked during the uh, uh, during the full period of the execution. Uh, Orlando Hall's religious advisor says that um, during periods in which he was in the execution chamber, um, there were times in which the executioners or the execution team were not wearing masks, uh, and, um, and 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 that's that's important, yeah. The other thing that um, there's a obviously we need somebody who is neutral and objective uh, to determine whether the execution has visibly gone wrong. Uh, That's one of the uh, one of the big issues uh, with lethal injection, where there is a seven percent botched execution rate. Um, But what we found with lethal injection uh, as a result of Review of more than 200 autopsies uh, is that um, you often don't, don't see on the outside uh, what's going on on the inside, uh, and one of the difficulties uh, that the uh, that the media witnesses have had in in trying to to do witness uh, for the public uh, is that the prisoners are mostly covered uh, by sheets during uh, during the federal executions. I was talking, though, with with an anesthesiologist who observed a Missouri execution and then also looked at the autopsy results. Uh, And he said what he saw really surprised him because uh, even as a trained medical observer, uh, he was not able to see anything that indicated that the execution was other than um, a peaceful passing. And when he saw the autopsy, he saw that the prisoner had pulmonary edema uh, and froth and foam uh, coming out of his lungs into his airwaves, which indicated that he was experiencing a sensation akin to waterboarding and suffocation. Uh, So it's really critical that that, uh, media witnesses be there to see if something visibly wrong is happening. Uh, But it's also really important that we have autopsies uh, to find out uh, what really occurred on the inside. Sarah? Yeah,
5: I think... I think that's really interesting, and we've done some NPR did an incredible investigation, and we've done some reporting on that too. George, didn't you talk to some experts about possibly what folks are feeling as they're being given the lethal injection?
3: Yeah, I mean, the um, what what Robert was saying is is right that the these autopsies show um, you know evidence of this condition called pulmonary edema, which you know people have. Compared to waterboarding, um, just extraordinarily painful um, sensation of drowning, um, and then it can last for an incredibly long time. I mean, I you know I, I have no idea what um, Mr. Bernard was feeling last night, but you know his execution was from 9:07 until 9:27, so it's 20 minutes of you know um, of, of feeling whatever you're feeling, um, and. And that—that's and the interesting thing, I guess. in the in the big question is because we don't really know what's going on inside of someone who's paralyzed. Um, whereas, you can—you know—you can see if you know, if a, you know, if an electrocution goes wrong and someone's you know head catches on fire, it's very obvious that that you know, execution was botched. But if a bunch of you know, non non medical journalists are sitting in a in a room watching somebody whose arm might shake a little bit or who maybe breathes slightly irregularly, you know, we. It's just not the same thing. We don't know.
1: All right, Sarah, I think you had a question before, too. Yeah,
5: I, I also wanted to ask, you know, during all of these last-minute appeals, and George and Adam, you've both gone, gone through this, what is happening during that time with the person who's supposed to be executed? Are they in this room, just waiting to be executed that whole time?
4: It depends, because during um, the first one, back on July, Daniel Lee, who was the first person executed by the federal government in 17 years, was strapped to the gurney for about four hours while his appeals played out. But typically, they keep them, uh, if you're familiar with that complex, there's two, two giant facilities, and Death Row is in the more modern side of the prison, and they do keep them there, I guess, almost until they know for certain that there are no longer any appeals pending. And then they take them over. It's probably about a half a mile uh, between the death chamber and and death row. And there really is no holding facility that we know of inside that room. Um, They just bring them right in. And then by the time we're brought in there and the blinds are raised, they are already um, strapped down and have IVs coming out of both arms. And then the charges are read and then the execution begins. So, Um, But typically they are kept uh, in an isolation cell on what's called the A-wing before, uh, up until their appeals are exhausted.
1: So if you want to join us on this program today, we are talking about the death penalty. There have been a, uh, I'd say a veritable flurry of executions in Terre Haute, Indiana at the federal penitentiary um, since July of this year. And there are some more scheduled to occur before January 20th which is the the day that uh, President Trump's term is is up if you have questions or comments you can send them to us on Twitter at noon edition and you can also send them uh, to the show at news at Indiana Public we got um, I've got uh, on my uh, message here uh, about the execution of Orlando Hall um, Adam was that? your observation or is this someone yes
4: that was that was my uh that was that was the last one before last night it was back before thanksgiving it was november 19th
1: okay um, could you give us that observation yeah
4: yeah i mean you know someone was um inquiring about whether masks were worn i can only speak for the 20 or 25 minutes it took for him to die when the curtains were up but there were three individuals in that execution chamber four if you include the spiritual advisor um, right when they opened the curtains they or, or Orlando Hall had a mask on the attendant, the Bureau of Prisons official took the mask off and to let him give his final statement. Um, he wasn't wearing one um, as well as the U.S marshal wasn't wearing one during the entire procedure. There was another Bureau of prisons person who wasn't wearing one and a spiritual advisor. I think he was wearing one. Uh, that was the guy that came down with COVID. Now, I can't speak – they may have had their masks on before the curtains came up and took them off to be able to communicate during this process because there is a uh, – one of the Bureau of Prisons guy has a radio that he can communicate um, because the execution room is not visible. You can't see the person in there where the chemicals come out of. So uh, maybe they felt like they needed to have the masks off um, during um, uh, the whole procedure, and they put them back on once the curtains came down. I don't know, um, but I do know I didn't see him wearing them, and uh, that is not a very big room. So um, you take that for what it's worth.
2: Yeah, and if I can jump in, you know, that's an extremely important observation. Uh, there were there was a lawsuit that was filed by two of the prisoners, uh, non-capital prisoners in, in Terre Haute, uh, seeking to halt these executions because of the danger of spreading the, uh, the virus. Uh, and Rick Winter, who is a regional counsel for the Bureau of Prison, um, disputed the claim by Hall's religious advisor uh, that uh, that the execution team personnel were not wearing masks. Uh, I think it's really important because uh, that is something that the federal government filed in, in court pleadings. Uh, it's important to note that that's not uh, uh, the, uh, the Bureau of Prisons observation uh, is not consistent with the observation of uh, of the media folks.
4: Yeah, I, I was looking. I mean, I remember, you know, because they're the same two individuals, 'Cause I, I remember their faces because the Marshal and then that one Bureau of Prisons guy who reads off the charges and George, you know him, I I remember they were their bare faces. I mean, now again, they could have been wearing masks before that curtain came up and took it off and we didn't know. But they were not wearing it for the duration of the execution, um, because I saw you know, I saw them. So, uh, and I'm not trying to sound defensive, but uh, it's it's just a fact, you know. That's that's oh, what I'm
3: yeah, I don't know, Adam. It's true. It's it's amazing that you know the, they're battling this out in court right now. And the Bureau of Prisons is, you know, insisting that they are following all these rules. And yet in front of the journalists, you know, who are sitting there, just, some of them are just openly defying them. I mean, last night, you know, only one of the two people, um, you know, to the left and right of Mr. Bernard was wearing a mask at all. Um, you know, it's just and, and it's the same thing that we heard, too, from the spiritual advisor, like like Robert said um uh, you know, Adam and I interviewed him after Orlando Hall's execution. and He was insisting that you know he was so he was so scared because he had been in this environment where he felt it was extremely unsafe, and that he was afraid he was going to get COVID nineteen. And lo and behold, ten days later, he did.
4: And, and I also heard too. I don't want to belabor the point, but that the um, director of the Bureau of Prisons, Michael Carvajal, he testified uh, in front of some congressional committee last week. And they asked him, you know, why don't you get your employees tested? And he said he couldn't do it. And I wondered, well, you're the director, you're the man in charge of the entire Bureau of Prisons. And maybe there maybe there's a correction officers union that that prevents. Maybe there are some other things we just don't know about. Um, but I thought that was very telling.
2: Yeah, and that is complete nonsense as well, because whether or not you can force an individual to wear a mask, you can establish a policy that says if you don't wear a mask, you can't participate in this function. So uh, it, it's, a, it, it's a false statement, as a matter of fact, as to what the, uh, the personnel are actually doing. Uh, and it's an indication that the government really isn't taking COVID-19 seriously with respect to the, uh, with respect to the executions
1: talking with four guests today, three guests right now. We hope to have a fourth during the second half of our program, but we're talking right now with Adam Pinsker and George Hale, who are WFIU, WTIU reporters, and they've both been media witnesses for executions that have happened in the last few months in the federal penitentiary at Terre Haute. We also have Robert Dunham, Death Penalty Information Center Executive Director. If you have questions or comments, you can send them in to us. At Noon Edition on Twitter and you can also send them to news at Indiana Public dot org. Uh Robert Dunham, I wanted to ask you about the a study that uh your organization did, a report on racial discrimination in the death penalty, I believe it came out in September. Can you talk about those findings?
2: Yeah. Um We did a report uh, called Enduring Injustice, The Persistence of Racial Discrimination in the Death Penalty in the United States. uh, And we looked at the history uh, of capital punishment in the United States. We wanted to put the death penalty uh, both in the historical context of uh, of the way it had been used uh, from colonial times forward, uh, and in the context of the racial justice movement that we're seeing uh, sweeping the country right now. Uh, What we found is, uh, and and this shouldn't be surprising, uh, is that the death penalty is, uh, in many respects, a continuation of uh, the policies of slavery, lynching, uh, and Jim Crow. Uh, Executions occur, 85% of the modern executions occur in former slave states. Uh, They... uh, They disproportionately involve instances uh, in which there is a white victim. uh, White lives matter more in determining whether a case becomes a capital case. uh, And um, that once a case is selected as a capital case, uh, a defendant is disproportionately likely uh, to be convicted and sentenced to death uh, if he or she is a defendant of color. Uh, We found that race discrimination um, permeated the entire criminal legal system. And in capital cases, uh, as in other cases, it starts with, uh, with the way in which policing happens. uh, And then it runs all the way through the process. And each stage along the way, uh, the outcomes uh, become more racially disparate. Uh, There are glaring examples uh, of the death penalty being overtly applied uh, on the basis of race. Historically, um, with with slavery, obviously uh, that was uh, that was race based. Uh, and then in the years afterwards, uh, states began adopting death penalty laws uh, that made it so that crimes committed by African Americans uh, were subject to the death penalty in circumstances in which white defendants would not be subject to the death penalty, uh, and crimes involving black victims uh, were not capital crimes. Uh, in circumstances in which crimes involving white victims were capital, uh, many in the early years, many of the offenses uh, for there were capital offenses uh, carried mandatory death sentences. Uh, but once it became illegal uh, to uh, to discriminate on the basis of race, uh, we saw states beginning to adopt discretionary Laws And that discretion was exercised more to spare white lives than it was uh, to determine uh, whether the facts warranted mercy or not. And I think all of that colors what we see today uh, in the period from the beginning of the uh, 20th century up until the modern era, uh, we saw the death penalty imposed for uh, non-murders, crimes like rape and robbery. Uh, and in in those cases, especially with rape, almost everybody who was sentenced to death uh, was African-American. Whites and blacks were treated very differently. And so when we look at the statistical disparities in the modern era, understood in the context of everything we've seen in the past, uh, they reflect even greater degrees of racial
1: discrimination than you might otherwise think. All right. Thanks for explaining that, that study. Now, we are going to be joined by Angela Moore, a former federal prosecutor who was involved in the uh, case of Brandon Bernard, but um, Angela Moore, you've had uh, a, lo- a lot of time since 1999, and you've had some. Your your mind has changed a little bit. Can you just explain, you know, your involvement in this case and how how your thoughts have changed? I think you're <laughs> muted.
6: There you go. I Barely. think I got uh, unmuted now. Um, thank you for having me and thank you for addressing this very important issue. Um, I agree with the statements that were just made and how how I was involved is after Mr. Bernard and Vialva were convicted. And as you all know, they were tried in a joint trial, which I think was one of the main problems uh, in this trial Uh, And so after he was convicted, and Mr. Rialva were convicted, I handled the first level of appeal uh, for the federal government. That's when I was an assistant U.S. attorney. And so my job was to make sure that the convictions uh, were affirmed on appeal, and I was successful. They were affirmed, and they've been affirmed each step along the way, unfortunately. Now, after this case, and but not just because of this case, but after this uh, case uh, and because of others, I felt I just did not want to serve uh, the community in that way. And I, I left and entered private practice and became the first public defender in San Antonio and ran that office. And I've been in private practice for several years. And... Having matured as a human being, I'm 57 now. It's been 18 years since I worked on this case. You know, I'm a different person. And obviously, Brandon Bernard was also. Um, I've looked at the disparities that we've already talked about here today. Um, They are rampant. And uh, shall I just go on? I feel like.
1: No, you're doing fine. Thank you.
6: Okay. Okay, so the problems I see with the whole legal system, and in particular this case, um, and, and I think the denial uh, of his stay last night was just criminal. I really do. Um, this, this is a case we weren't just trying to save a life because we don't believe in the death penalty, which where I stood as well. But this was a case that legally had new evidence There were problems in the case. There was misconduct on the part of the government, which, of course, none of us, you know, on appeal knew at the time because we have to rely on what we call the cold record, what happened in the courtroom. But um, I know others have discussed the evidence that had come forward. And so I don't want to, you know, use up too much time with that. Are you all familiar with what evidence they found? that the defense propounded
1: Uh, i don't believe we've talked about that now
6: okay all right uh just briefly um and and i think is george hale on this call as well
1: yes he is
6: okay Okay. Hey. hey george i think george may know uh more about the details of that my brain's a little foggy today for obvious reasons but um one of the experts that testified for the government at trial um, had told the jury that there was no hierarchy in gang activity. In other words, this expert was telling the jury, you should consider Bernard just as guilty as Vialva. When the actions that, uh, if you believe the evidence that he was engaged in that day show that he did not intend to kill anyone, he did not plan this offense. And that the court, um, opinion mentions that he had this violent past no he didn't he had a shoplifting a theft and a burglary charge for breaking a window that those are not crimes of violence to be considered in this sort of context and um, the main witness against Mr. Bernard was a guy named Terry Brown and That kid is the one, he was a kid at the time, is the one who who provided the government with evidence that really linked Mr. Bernard to um, the acts which supported the intent the government was pursuing. Now, Mr. Brown was a juvenile at the time of the offense, so they could not seek death, but he got a very good deal, and he is out. He's out of prison. But here, Mr. Bernard, who engaged in far lower-level acts, did not plan this case. Um, There's so many disparities. He got executed. And yet, the individual, Mr. Brown, who, in my opinion, is far more culpable, is out of prison. Uh, um, Excuse me.
1: I was just going to ask you, if you could, to, I'm really interested to, to hear more about um your change of mind from you know from being a prosecutor who was uh responsible for making sure that that the uh the federal case against brandon bernard was upheld to someone who just does not believe he deserved to be executed last night at all
6: okay well over these last let's say 18 years um You know, I questioned the efficacy of the death penalty the whole time I was a prosecutor. And when I was a federal prosecutor on this case, I had only been a prosecutor. I was a state prosecutor and then a federal prosecutor. And I I think that causes tunnel vision and there's a desensitization of prosecutors where we are molded. Uh, I say we, when I was a prosecutor, we are molded to look at defendants as not human beings, that they are them and we are us, and that capital punishment is really a form of community self-defense is how it's rationalized. But as I've explained, you know, over the years, I have seen the racial disparity that has been applied to young black males and People would always call it playing the race card or, you know, this, this, you know, made up sort of reasons. No, it's real. It's real. And now we know it's real. It's on videos from cell cameras. It's, you know, people are marching in the streets about it. And it's real. And then we see the privileged people um, who sit. In judgment of this, and I was really disappointed in the Seventh Circuit, a 5-4 ruling denying the state. So one human being with a robe got to decide that Brandon Bernard got killed last night. One person. Mm -hmm. And how fair is that? There's no justice in capital punishment. And I truly believe in all my heart that the Bagley's, Mr. and Mrs. Bagley, who were the victims in this case, would not have wanted anyone executed for this crime. I believe that with all my heart. And having represented human beings for all these last years has completely changed my worldview and my view as the role of a prosecutor and and what my role as defending rights are. Um, You know, we're always faced with these questions. How do you defend those people? I get that all the time. And I explain to people that, first of all, this is a human being. Secondly, the rights that I am fighting for are yours. They're not just this individual. They're yours. But individuals, you know, laypersons, don't want to believe that the system is broken. They don't want to believe that. But my point of view, I've been using as my mantra, is the system isn't broken. It was never meant to work. And that is the prosecution is designed to get a conviction. That is how the rules of evidence are applied. That is how the case laws have been interpreted for decades now. It is to get a conviction at all costs and to uphold it. That's... That's what's happening, all right, and, and um, I'm sorry, I had one more thing I was okay, going sure. to say. oh, is that, um, as I've seen over the years and read case after case and record after record, um capital punishment does not uh prevent recidivism. it doesn't it serves no purpose but retribution. And to feed this bloodlust, as I call it, in this country, that's what it serves.
5: George, I want to ask you real quick. From last night's execution, was wasn't there someone there from the Bagley family? Or I know you talked to someone who was thanking the president for finally carrying out Bernard's execution.
3: Yeah, it actually really surprised me that um, uh, there were ten people from uh, different different um, family members who showed up at the very end kind of unexpectedly because uh, no one showed up for Christopher Vialva's execution. And he was obviously the one who, you know, was the shooter. So I, I didn't expect them to turn up for this. Um, yeah. So uh, Georgia Bagley, Todd Bagley's um, mother, Todd being one of the two victims um, she spoke uh, briefly as she thanked the president and um, uh, William Barr and others and just reiterated that, you know, that there should be a price to pay when you, when you take a life, what was really interesting though, and i wish uh, i wish I could have gotten into this in some of the stories today is um that she so she had a written statement you know had written out this sort of um not angry but very you know uh justice has been served kind of uh tone but uh she actually once she had read all that and you know she she kind of uh actually set you know sort of set it down and wasn't able to stay as composed and I don't blame her but she she said that actually she also wanted to add that the apologies, the sincere apologies that um Brandon Bernard and Christopher Vialva made um you know in their last words, you know, had had really helped to, I think she said, um have you know truly healed my heart. And I can honestly say that I, I forgive them both. And that it was it was fascinating because it wasn't on the, the script that she was supposed to read, so it seemed like it was actually, you know, something that occurred to her almost unexpectedly.
5: Yeah. Um Adam, can you talk a little bit about the execution of Bourgeois that is scheduled for later today? Um, What what uh, is his case about?
4: This one was originally supposed to happen last year. And then, you know, a judge in uh, Washington, D.C. had had stayed all those um, executions that were originally planned uh, for this time last year. So he was convicted in um, uh, Texas as well for uh, he had gotten he gained uh, custody of his two and a half year old daughter and he was making a delivery to a naval air station in corpus christi texas i think it was in 2002 and he got frustrated with the child and just was beating her repeatedly eventually he killed her according to the prosecution the baby had just tons of, of bruises and welts and uh, just suffered tremendously um The attorney I spoke with in his case cited a 2002 Supreme Court ruling that said the federal government, and and Robert can correct me on this because he's the attorney, I'm not, I have no legal background, or Angelo can correct me. Um, But they cited a case where you cannot execute somebody whose IQ is at a certain level if it's too low, and his came in at about 75, and I looked up what the average IQ is, just bare average, it's 116. So that's what they were arguing, um, uh, before one of the appeals courts a couple days ago. And they uh, I would assume would take up to the Supreme court again, based on that case. Um, so, um, but I've not seen anything as of, you know, 1245 here that would indicate his execution scheduled at six is not going to go ahead. So, and that's, that's pretty much what I know about it. Uh,
2: I can jump in on that if you would like uh, yeah. about the issues. Um, <clears throat> mr <clears throat> mr bourgeois has uh has an i q that's within the intellectually disabled range uh, and when um, in, initially his lawyers didn 't do his trial lawyers didn 't do much in the way of investigating his mental health uh, when his post conviction lawyers the second stage of appeals uh, raised the issue. Uh, the Texas federal courts resolved it against Mr. Bourgeois, but they applied a, a series of lay stereotypes uh, instead of the uh, clinical definitions of intellectual disability. Uh, and the stereotypes that they used were later declared unconstitutional to use uh, by the US Supreme Court. Uh, What happened afterwards was, and the reason that there is still litigation uh, going on in this case, uh, is that Mr. Bourgeois said that he should be entitled uh, to have his intellectual disability determined based on legitimate medical standards. Uh, And the federal courts ruled that he had been given a prior chance uh, to raise that issue. Uh, And even though the courts addressed it under an incorrect standard, uh, that was it. He was out of court. Uh, He's in in the U.S. Supreme Court right now uh, with a slightly different appeal because the Federal Death Penalty Act says uh, that you cannot carry out the execution of a person. um, They use the word mental retardation. It's now intellectual disability. Uh, And so Mr. Bernard is arguing that even if they're not going to apply, if the courts are not going to apply the correct constitutional standard on his constitutional claim, he has a statutory right Uh, to be adjudicated intellectually disabled or not intellectually disabled before he's executed. So um, if that's the case, the court would stay his execution to allow uh, an assessment using the correct um, medical definitions of intellectual disability. But so far, what we've seen in his case uh, and in all the other cases... Is that the U.S. Supreme Court has denied stays of execution, even when there are significant legal issues uh, that have still been res- that are still to be resolved, uh, because uh, they have interpreted uh, the, the federal appellate statute as saying, uh, e- even if you were represented by ineffective uh, lawyers at an earlier stage, you don't get a second bite at the apple.
1: I want to move on to one other case that I want to make sure we talk about a little bit today, and it's the case of Lisa Montgomery, who is awaiting execution. And Adam and George, you've been doing extensive reporting on this case for a documentary that uh, WTIU has already aired one time. Um, Could you talk about the Lisa Montgomery case? Let's start with with Adam. I mean, what, what makes this an interesting case? I'm, I'm just
4: muted. Sorry. On the surface, the last time a uh, woman was executed by the federal government, it was in 1953. And that, um, there are similar parallels. That that um, defendant was also involved in kidnapping a child, but was, there was a difference in the fact that that woman kidnapped a, a grown child. Lisa Montgomery was convicted of crossing state lines and killing a woman, Bobby Joe Stinnett, in northwest Missouri. Uh, with the intention of cutting her 8 8-month-old uh, at that point almost a month to be born baby out of her womb which she did uh and took it over to her hometown in Kansas within a day investigators found the baby and the baby survived and is doing very well um but uh, one of the other other side of it is that Lisa Montgomery suffered extreme extreme uh physical and mental abuse sexual abuse was raped Uh, numerous times when she was uh, um, a preteen and into being a teenager was uh, sexually assaulted by her stepdad. And and, um, again, this is a situation where, you know, her um, trial lawyers did not get a chance to present or just for whatever reason did not properly present that case. And now the appellate lawyers or they have been trying to, uh, to, to present it to uh, the jury, but like Mr. Dunham was saying, or to the appeals court, um it, it seems like the precedence has been that they don't get a second bite of the apple.
1: George what what strikes you about this case?
4: Yeah
3: I mean Adam did a good job just summarizing it and I, I know we don't have a ton more time but um it really to me the 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 things that that are so different about this case is that um she's severely mentally ill and you know and she's facing execution um it's a little, I think it's a little bit different than what Robert was talking about. Like with Alfred Bourgeois, who might you know have a, a low IQ. At um, least Montgomery is, is psychotic. I mean, she like her. She has actually diagnoses of dissociative disorder um, and you know and other disorders. And they they think that that could be the result of a, a combination of factors, including head trauma, um, but but probably you know directly related to the unrelenting abuse she suffered as a child, I think I could hear Adam struggling to find the right words. I think that I am too, after reading all these, you know, hundreds of pages of reports, um, she was sex trafficked by her own family from from childhood onward and ended up marrying her stepbrother. Um, and, um, and, you know, supposedly he, he continues in that, that violence. Um, yeah, so anyway, so, you know, it's the question is, I think, uh, not whether or not she is um, innocent of this crime which she, she certainly you know has confessed to doing but that you know it, are we really going to execute someone who is this mentally ill and who has suffered so much trauma already you know it's, that's the question
1: okay we have about two minutes to go robert i wanted you to have an opportunity to weigh on on that case and also to sort of uh frame the future for us
2: well i i i think that uh Uh, Adam and George have done a really good job of describing Lisa Montgomery. So let me, uh, let me spend my time on the, uh, on on the future. Uh, One of the things that's made the transition period executions so controversial uh, is um, that the current administration knows full well that the uh, Biden administration has said it intends to try to end the federal death penalty. Uh, And so if they do not carry out these executions now, um, it is unlikely that anybody will be executed uh, for at least as long as Mr. Biden is president. Uh, What a Biden administration um, can do uh, is attempt to get legislation to end the death penalty. That would be difficult right now with a divided Congress uh, and the polarization of, uh, of American politics. But if Congress does not agree to abolish the death penalty, uh, the Biden administration has the ability to um, refuse to prosecute capital cases or cases as capital, uh, to decapitalize the cases that are, are already uh, listed as, uh, as being capitally prosecuted. Uh, and he has the power to pardon. Uh, and you can grant clemency in individual cases. Uh, he can grant clemency to the entire death row. Uh, Joe Biden is someone who learns from history, and he um, he was one of the co-authors of the expanded federal death penalty bill that led to a number of these prosecutions. Uh, he also knows, uh, as through his experience with the Obama administration, uh, that an informal um, uh, an informal moratorium on executions only kicks the can down the road. There is a very real sense in which the inaction. Uh, of the prior administration created uh, the environment in which this many executions uh, could take place now. Uh, So I think that if he is really committed uh, to ending the death penalty, as the political rhetoric says, uh, we will probably see some form of commission created to study the federal death penalty uh, and some exercise of the power of clemency.
1: All right. Well, thank you. We are out of time. I do want to thank Robert Dunham from the Death Penalty Information Center. Thank you very much for being here again with us. My pleasure. Reporters Adam Pinsker and George Hale from WFIU-WTIU, and also Angela Moore, former federal prosecutor, who has uh, changed her mind about the death penalty. Uh, For co-host Sarah Whitmire, for producer Benta Boutier and engineer John Bailey, I'm Bob Salzberg.
0: Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org/slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, Fiber Internet, Streaming TV, Home Security, and Automation in Southern Indiana. More information at Smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.